So welcome to the latest in our business and human rights podcast series. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, I'm Rachel Barrett. I'm a partner in the Linklater Sustainability Team, and I'm joined by Vanessa Havard-Williams, who's the global head of our sustainability team. And we're really fortunate today to be joined by Maria Knapp and Henry Smith from Control Risks. Maria is a partner who leads Control Risks ESG practice, and Henry is a partner who manages business intelligence and due diligence for Control Risks investor and corporate clients in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. And we're all here today to talk a little bit about human rights in the context of M&A transactions. So with no further ado, um, Henry, when we're undertaking human rights due diligence, we find it's quite important to start by building a really deep understanding of what the target business does and the environment in which it operates. Is that something that you do too? And, and if it is, can you talk us through how you do that? Where do you start? It is, Rachel, and thanks very much for having us today on the podcast. So the work that I do is probably best understood as considering a target company from the outside in. So building a picture of what is said by people with advantage over this company or documented in the public record about it and the people who manage it. So this diligence sits quite neatly alongside the work that lawyers such as yourselves do and other advisory teams that are perhaps more inside out when they're looking at the target. And we'll talk about that a bit later on. I think but with human rights due diligence is a very fundamental starting point, which is asking yourself a simple but perhaps overlooked question, which is what does this company or asset fundamentally do? I think a lot of human rights and broader ESG motivated assessments can sometimes begin with the how. So how a company does what it does, the constitution of its labor force, the oversight it has of its supply chain and third parties. But really, we should always begin by understanding what this company does and who or what they create value for. If you're a corporate that's acquisitive in a sector, say a manufacturer of security equipment or a mining company, then this is somewhat more Im implicit and known. It's an extension of what you already do. Though if you're, say, a private equity sponsor with a diverse sector strategy, then it perhaps needs to be asked more explicitly at the start of a new diligence process. I think once you've got that fairly straightforward question clear, then you can consider the more complicated question of whether these concerns apply in general to the asset or company that you're looking at, or whether that concern specific to an asset or a set of clients in particular countries where human rights problems and shortcomings may exist. It's quite possible with the acquisition of a multinational company, for example, that there are multiple assets, clients or countries in which human rights issues may present themselves, particularly if you're working in sectors in which the company's activities perhaps more inherently expose you to human rights issues. You may at this stage also need help perhaps prioritizing countries or assets, given that diligence budgets, as we know, are not finite. And you can do this through the use of external quantitative indices, such as Freedom House, Transparency International, which many of the listeners will, of course, know. And we also have social risk ratings for countries which can be used in this early new markets risk, risk exposure type assessment. But they can also be integrated into transactional diligence like this. With some markets, we're also spending time with clients helping them understand the nuance about these issue, issues that sometimes get lost in quantitative measures. 
and indeed understanding the nuance between different regions of the same country. And I think if you use this as a starting point of your process to scope an active, involved investigation into the targets that's based on an assessment of the sector and the country-specific human rights risk issues, then you're off to a good start. So you mentioned how companies do what they do. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, absolutely. So most human rights due diligence guidance will rightfully, I think, recommend that you look at a company's supply chain and labour force as two areas in which human rights risks present themselves. Human rights is quite clearly fundamentally about people, so labour issues will be a central part of any of this diligence. With this in mind, then, I think it's crucial to understand a few questions or points about the target that you're considering. So firstly, how does the target hire and manage its people in the countries which have problems with labour rights and human rights? What is the nature of the populations in these countries that you, the target company is hiring and giving particular attention to vulnerable or marginalised groups that they might be recruiting from? And does the organisation finally have a process to provide some sort of visibility and indeed remediation of any human rights related issues in its supply chains. And I think here it will be quite clear to our listeners that some of these points will need to be addressed from the inside out process that uh, you'll pick up a bit later, Rachel, with Vanessa. And I think it'll also be clear here to our listeners that there's a difficult exercise in trying to balance how far to go into a company supply chain and this is a challenge for diligence of all types, not just human rights related to diligence. Ultimately, the question of which level of third party is it sufficient to diligence? And I think there, the short answer is that there's no clear answer, unfortunately, either in terms of industry best practice or indeed regulatory expectations. Rather, you need to be led, as we're trying to portray here, by a risk assessment of the third party or the target company that you're looking at. And that's really a combination of risk factors that a specific third party that has a relationship with the target um, presents. So the country of operation, the materiality of a relationship, and also any significant issues that the client or company looking at the investment may have identified already. And this will help you ultimately to prioritize your resources on third or indeed fourth or fifth parties where the risk is perhaps greatest. And just finally, on the subject of how I would say a key variable is trying to gauge the culture of the target company that you're investing in. So how much oversight does the headquarters of the company have over its standards and compliance in other countries? And does the company have a culture amongst its employees of raising issues or even whistleblowing? And does that employee base feel that the organization is sufficiently inclusive? and open to raise sensitive issues without fear of reprisal. That's a really interesting perspective. How do you go about doing that? I mean, do you look at commentary from people familiar with the company or are there other ways of doing that? There's always a balance, I think, Rachel, in diligence between what is done by the corporate or investor themselves and what their advisors can do. I think for the points I've mentioned, there's a need to be able to look in the right places in terms of digital sources of information and government databases, which of course vary by sector and country in terms of how useful they are. And then to draw in commentary from people who know the target company, perhaps one of its higher risk assets or indeed its management team 
to flesh out the issues that have been documented in the public domain or that won't have been reported on in a way that's balanced or nuanced sufficiently to be useful for the people ultimately making a decision about the investment. You can complement these two methods, though, with an approach that includes site visits to see for yourself what's happening and to engage with stakeholders in the vicinity of a particular project or asset, and also to inform how you shape questions for the management team of a company. Now, there it will depend on the specifics of each case, what's the most appropriate method and who should undertake that research. With clients of ours, in my experience, having different preferences based on the specifics of the deal that they're looking at. And of course, right now, the practicalities of actually being able to travel. And some of these points, just as a final remark, I think it's fair to say can be challenging to identify and flesh out through the documents and processes that might be available in the data room. So a more hands-on approach using some of these methods that I've just described is often required. It's really interesting. I think it's clear in this area that there's a general theme of having to go quite broad when it comes to due diligence to build up a, a good picture of what's going on at the asset. Vanessa, I, I know we use quite a few other resources when we do due diligence. Do you want to touch on a, a few of them? It's a bit like building a jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? Um, I, I, I agree with what Henry was saying about access to stakeholders. If you can get it, that can be hugely valuable. The, the other thing that, that we do um, is we use uh, databases to see if we can identify what NGOs are saying about the particular um, asset or business. Um, and we may search around that. Um, we use non-conventional media sources. Actually, they're probably quite conventional now. That's just me being old. Um, so we do we, we do check Twitter, we do we we check um, other platforms and we'll also use proxy indicators, uh, CPI, GSI, the Fashion Transparency Index. And we will definitely read what the target says in its annual report, its sustainability report uh, and any other relevant statements that it pushes out online. Obviously, there may not always be alignment between what's what's said from a policy perspective and, and, and how that, that gets articulated and implemented on the ground. Thanks, Vanessa. I think they're all really useful additional sources of information to help you triangulate a picture of the target company that you're looking at. Now, Rachel, if I could ask you a question, normally when lawyers are doing a due diligence exercise, my impression is that a virtual data room full of documents is a main source of their findings. And as someone who's often doing the outside in, Perhaps I should be envious of what you're able to see. How does that data room typically help you with human rights due diligence? So that is right. Lawyers do spend a lot of time in data rooms. Um, it's a place we like to be. Um, and I think sometimes they can be really useful resources when it comes to, to trying to understand um, potential human rights issue at a target, but you do have to come at it through uh, a, quite a specific lens because there are documents in there that you might otherwise be reviewing uh, and perhaps summarise in a due diligence report and, and you wouldn't actually pick up the human rights issue unless you were looking quite carefully for it or you were looking for trends. 
So some documents that can be quite helpful from that perspective, uh, for example, if you see uh, audit reports from a particular site or a factory, environmental audit reports sometimes pick up health and safety or labour issues, for example. Um, grievance logs are always very useful um, if you have the time to go through them and scan for trends or spot things that might be characterised perhaps as a, a human resources complaint, but actually really give rise to some, some interesting human rights questions. Um, and likewise, things like accidents or incidents registers, again, um, can tell a story about what's going on at, at the asset. But I think it's fair to say, generally, um, it's a very, fairly narrow set of documents that will be responsive to the question, are there any human rights issues at the target? And it's, the data room isn't really where we find all of the answers. Um, the other thing we see in data rooms quite often are policies one or many, depending on, on the target in question and what they've put in there. Um, it's helpful to know they exist, and particularly when they relate to human rights or, or labour, uh, working conditions, business ethics, um, but they only really tell us that they exist. They don't tell us any more about how they're being implemented. So um, uh, useful to note that, that the target has gone to the trouble of creating them, and that's positive. It shows a, a, a focus on the issue. Um, but we really need to dig a bit deeper. That's really only the very beginning of, of the story. So it's important to, to remember that. So yeah, data rooms useful uh, when viewed through the right lens, um, but, but generally not the place where you find all the answers. Um, we rely quite heavily actually on engaging directly with the seller or directly with the target through the due diligence question and answer process. So we almost always ask some questions that are focused on potential human rights issues. Um, we might ask uh, about impacts on communities. We might uh, ask about the extent to which an operation is uh, taking, say, a lot of the water supply uh, in the area and whether, whether there are any conflict issues arising from that. If we think a transaction is going to be higher risk, then we tend to pro provide time for more extensive and, and more detailed questions. Um, but we won't necessarily label them in a particular way. There's an art to asking the questions and to feeding them into the broader um, management um, Q&A process. And you need to be aware that there will be cultural sensitivities. Nobody be, uh, really wants to be asked questions that suggest that, that, that their bidder thinks that there's a significant issue. Um, sometimes we'll just trail a question to see what kind of uh, response that we get to go, give us a sense of the level of sophistication of the target. And sometimes we ask to, in order to get some documents that we really want to see. And all of that together, factored in also with the inputs of other advisors, helps us to get some kind of understanding as to uh, the culture, um, the level of understanding of risk and the systems and controls that the target will have in place. But having said all of that, in, in, a, in a competitive situation, even in a non-competitive transaction, that process has limitations. And it really depends whether you can get to the right person uh, and, and have time with them to ask the questions. Maria, from your perspective, are there other things that, that you'd look out for? Thanks, Vanessa. Yeah, I think, well, earlier Henry mentioned companies' abilities to um, air out and remediate human rights issues. 
Um, and although I appreciate um, access to the information will vary from um, deal to deal, it's entirely possible at the outset to address grievance mechanisms in place, at least how they're set up um, and how they're managed, um, and also what is their reach um, to the right stakeholder groups. And then later in the deal, um, it's necessary to really then look at the level of engagement um, that stakeholders actually have with the grievance, grievance mechanisms um, and to get a sense of the level of implementation. Um, it's just another element that you can use to, to get a better sense of the, the, the processes, uh, I guess, that underpin the policies Rachel was referring to earlier. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, in, in the end, once you've gone through these different processes, it, you come to a natural conclusion of the exercise and then uh, you need to weigh up the, the findings that you have, the, the volume and quality of information and decide whether you're going to go ahead uh, with a transaction or not, and if so, on what terms. And, and that can be quite tricky in this area if you found something that worries you. Uh, particularly if it's not wholly quantifiable or obviously binary. Um, equally, if you're in a high risk sector or jurisdiction and you have uh, a big fat zero of information, that can also be difficult knowing how to proceed. Absolutely, Vanessa. The question of what is enough information is a dilemma, I think, for all due diligence, and there's no exception for ESG and human rights issues. But the scarcity of information um, can really be more acute with regards to social risks and human rights, given current low disclosure requirements and the lack of consistency um, in media coverage until issues reach a high criticality point. And, and often those uh, reports are unverified, so require further investigation. Um, we've already talked about how um, policies are um, uh, perhaps not really definitive data points um, for uh, how a, a target is doing. And so this is why we we recommend, um, whilst you're working towards decision milestones, a strong approach up front. Um, for instance, using fit for purpose external questionnaires, which really should be revised for ESG risk factors. Um, that's a standalone exercise we found to be extremely useful, uh, but also targeted early stage reviews, tracking those specific risk factors with a focus on We've talked a little bit about company culture, um, but I also identifying um, visible and high profile potential issues linked to external stakeholders. From that point on, and we'll get onto this a little bit later, the trick is to identify what's a manageable um, issue versus what's a deal breaker. Um, and the starting point for determining that is really the definition of your investment strategy, your statement of values, and consideration of what are you prepared to tolerate. And conversely, an increasingly important question, I think, um, and hopefully a more commonplace one, is where do you have capacity to be value additive, where you've identified uh, an issue early on, and therefore um, 
I guess with ABC, as with ABC issues, you, you'll have your bottom line, but with human rights issues, there's not the same sort of prescriptive guidance, and we're still establishing what might be, you know, adequate and proportionate procedures to take, and, and it's really important to set your own tolerance level. Um, but I'd be interested, from your perspective of the deal side, where you found um, your clients to don't know, kind of arrive at a point where they, they don't have that information. And, and for instance, they need to uh, walk away from a deal. They, they, they haven't been able to identify kind of a, a value additive element or there's just, just scarcity of data. So I think what we've often seen are situations where there, there's limited data, but actually there's enough to identify a real problem with, with asset value. Um, and it often doesn't take a lot provided you've you've probed the data sufficiently um so for example we've seen people faced with assets which when you really looked at what was happening the human rights issues were giving rise to really serious operational problems um shutdowns and the likes um so so that was obviously very problematic and 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 they walked away on on the basis that actually they understood that, that they couldn't fix the problem um we've also seen people walk away where they've understood the legal consequences of certain types of human rights impact um, can give rise to uh, procurement problems. So uh, companies who no longer qualify for inclusion in government procurement processes. Now, for some companies, that's a large part or all the business. So um, if the target's been caught involved in something that, that has that outcome or may have that outcome, even with relatively little information, it certainly looks very unattractive. Um, and we've seen people walk away. Vanessa, I don't know if you've got other examples to share. I think sometimes you can get portfolios where there are significant social license to operate issues at a number of sites and in the aggregate, maybe the, the, the potential purchaser looks and thinks, actually, this is too hard. Um, it might, you know, one of them on their own might be capable with, but having them across a number of sites becomes unattractive. So that would be the other example that I think can crop up. Mm. And the question we get asked a lot is, can you fix this in the transaction documentation? Because lawyers are often asked to fix things in the transaction documentation. Um, and, and, and it's an interesting question in this area. I think it's fair to say um, not always. It's definitely the answer to that. Um, and it's certainly not market standard at this point in time to include provisions in sale and purchase documentation that specifically call out human rights and, and, and address human rights um, as a separate topic. It's worth remembering, I think, that, that some provisions in sale documentation will already cover human rights indirectly, so all is not lost. Um, for example, there are lots of topic areas that are covered by pretty market standard warranties, for example, in relation to compliance with laws, environmental issues, employment, litigation, that would pick up indirectly a number of human rights themes uh, or issues were they to arise. Um, sometimes we do try and include specific human rights warranties in the package when we're negotiating. 
Um, very often that's a strategic choice. We know we may not win the fight to get them in the document, but we are doing it similar to the way we ask due diligence questions. We're doing it to flush out information and test whether there's an issue, gauge the response that, that we get. And that in itself can be very, very useful. Um, but I think it's fair to say that a lot of human rights issues, um, because they're difficult to define, especially when you don't have a lot of information, they can be very complicated to unpack uh, and complicated to resolve, uh, mean they don't lend themselves particularly well to sort of the traditional documentary risk allocation methods that we use. We do occasionally see an indemnity where there's an issue which is sufficiently well known for us to be able to articulate in the documents, but it's not well understood enough for people to price in. So we have to use an indemnity as a, a method for, for reallocating uh, the, the risk of costs associated with that. But that's, that's very rare. I think much more often we see buyers who, they will know that there are potentially some issues. They will not know a huge amount about them, uh, but they will know that there's more digging and more work to be done after closing. And they generally get comfortable with proceeding on that basis, even though they know they may well be inheriting issues that could take quite some time to resolve. I mean, does that fit with what you guys tend to see, Henry and Maria? Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that, Rachel. And I think that the 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 the, the kind of silver bullet of um, transaction documentation uh, isn't quite there yet. Um, and I think human rights due diligence requires um, perhaps a more progressive iterative approach than um, and much more so than than traditional uh, ABC focused due diligence. Um, but even that we know there's there's um, a lot of back and forth um, moving milestones and you progress with depth as you do chronologically with a deal. Um, I'd say with human rights due diligence, there um, by by pre-close or close, um, there can still be um, unknowns in the detail. But ideally, you'll have pinpointed the headline issues and certainly those that are likely to impact significantly value uh, or operability. Um, and you're looking ahead, I guess, thinking about um, in the finance sense, the materiality of issues um, which link um, social risks, well, ESG issues more broadly um, with financial value. But at or after close, um, I'd highlight one big difference between uh, human rights diligence and um, financial crime or ABC focused diligence is that the structured data that's available for forensic um, due diligence post-close, which we often use to identify um, the specific nature and causes of fraud and, and financial crime and specific controls failures, don't have the same usefulness for social risks, um, such as human rights. So um, deep dive interviews, uh, site visits, um, everything that gets you closer to the operations are the or the asset are, are really key um, to pull together then a plan for issue mapping for further investigation and and resolution ultimately um, for instance local community engagement plans so you mentioned earlier Rachel the need to go broad well I I'd, I'd say we also need to go deep um, uh, especially post close uh, when you get that access. Agree. And we often hear about people um, 
looking to do impact assessments in relation to human rights. Is that something you typically see after closing, if you said before as well? Impact assessments um, are, they, they vary hugely in terms of, of breadth and depth. Um, and and typically depend on the, the footprint of the asset and operation. So the bigger the footprint, the more significant um, uh, the size and scale of the asset, um, the, the earlier you'll want to do an impact assessment. And it also varies, of course, um, in terms of sector and industry. I would think that um, companies that have done um, a proper a risk assessment and risk register for themselves can align, um, uh, say, for instance, investors that are focused on certain industry sectors um, will have guidance on those um, the kind of key risk factors affecting those industry sectors. We'll, able, we'll be able to take that and overlay it um, at the initial phases uh, of, of a diligence to kind of assess where they should be looking um, for um, for for red flag issues, um, so those issues should be really identified up front. But then, what you'll need is a remedial action plan and a communication plan around those actions um, that can be drafted promptly with high level engagement secured. Um, as soon as you've been able to go through uh, a, a deep dive impact assessment post close, I think that issues take a long time um, to resolve often um, in the in the human rights arena. So um, they would be difficult to meaningfully address pre-close. Um, I think impact assessments across the ESG spectrum also vary. So um, it can be tricky for some companies to do a full kind of environmental footprint assessment or um, really get a, a, a deep enough snapshot of um, its labor force, as Henry um, raised earlier, or of its supply chain um, early in the deal phase to do a really proper impact assessment. So I wouldn't want to put too much emphasis on um, the completion of an impact assessment beforehand. I would emphasize um, the, the sector industry risks that should be mapped out from the outset and then um, progress to a fuller impact assessment post-close. Makes sense, and that aligns with what we've we've seen as well. So I think just taking a step back from, from all of that, I think for me, certainly some of the key takeaways there are, are make sure this is factored in to your due diligence. I think, you know, actually it's worth mentioning, it isn't always, um, and it's important that this is within scope because human rights risks are, are real risks and have real value impacts. And I think that applies whether you're doing due diligence or vendor due diligence. Um, I think I also feel that it's important to be open to exploring options when it comes to addressing issues. There's often no silver bullets um, and kind of navigating a path through them that looks both to the immediate and the, and the often quite far off future is quite important. And I think for me, perhaps the final point linked to that is then, um, you know, don't just set aside a budget for doing your deal, set aside some budget for afterwards, um, because there may well be be further work to be done. I don't know if you guys have any other takeaways you wanted to highlight. I, I would highlight that there's um, there are similarities and differences from the due diligence you currently conduct uh, for human rights. Human rights issues often emanate from weak policies and controls, but they frequently manifest parochially or locally. 
and they're not as clearly detectable through structured data as financial crime. Um, and in other words, they they just often require a strong understanding of the local environment and a bit more tire kicking um, than you may have in your in your current framework. I agree. And for those who want further information, certainly on the Linklater's website, there are lots of other materials and there will be other podcasts in this series. So please do visit that uh, and have a look um, and feel free to contact any member of the team um, if you'd like a chat. And likewise from the team at Control Risks, thank you very much for joining us and thank you to Linklater's for having us. We also have additional information available on our website and we'd love to hear from you if you have further questions.